I would like for you to join me in Psalm 85. This is an incredible passage of Scripture. In fact, what we're going to see, or we're going to more truthfully hear, is David offer up a prayer. He's intentional. His language is very intentional. He's going to use words, and his words convey to us God's expectations. And here we're going to listen to what one old preacher called a patriotic prayer. It is a desperate plea, ultimately for hope. That's what David is offering up. Are you aware that God expects greatness from us? In fact, if I were to pull the room, I would imagine that all of us would settle on this as a reality. In my life, I would like to see God do great things. I don't think any one of us wants to squander our years. None of us want to waste our time in apathy or simply live a normal, average, everyday existence. We'd like to see God do great things. In fact, we even use that language intentionally. When we speak of the commission that Jesus gives ultimately to the church to take the gospel to the whole world, we don't call that the good commission. We call that the great commission. Even in Matthew, Jesus answering a question says in Matthew 22 and verse 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. This is the apex of all commandments. This is as great as it can be. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and he says, Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. That's the great chapter on love. And he's speaking about that motivation for ministry. And he's saying the greatest, the apex of motivation for ministry is love. We use that kind of terminology. We want God to do great things. We intentionally use that word. We're aware of God's expectation for us. But the only way for us to see great things done in our lives is for God to do them. And if God is going to do them, there are some expectations put upon us. I'm not merely talking about doing things that are inherently great or good. I'm not talking about just putting more work out there. James says to us this, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We can know to do good. We can aspire to do greatness. The truth is we don't necessarily know how to get all of this done. How? That's what David is praying aloud here in the 85th Psalm. I want you to listen in to Psalm 85 as David offers up this prayer. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin, Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. 
I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. There is a clear change in the attitude of David through that psalm. What we are hearing ultimately is David petitioning God for revival. In fact, it's a specific request that he offers up. Will you not revive us again, Lord? Revival is something that is necessitated for all believers. How many of you can remember, perhaps, as a church experience growing up, attending a revival meeting? Uh huh. How many of you ever attended a revival meeting and maybe it was outside under a tent in some folding chairs? Mm hmm. Now, how many of you remember the preaching that was done under the tent in those folding chairs and nobody's hand goes up? It's the same thing that would have happened to my outdoor devotional this morning. I know that. Now, there's a whole lot of shouting and a whole lot of spitting and a whole lot of fuming that can go on under those tents. And, and here's a reality that we have to understand. If we could schedule a revival as an event, wouldn't that be nice? What we're going to do this week is we're going to have revival. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to attend a revival. The fact is, if we could schedule it at any given time, it would do us good to just go ahead and schedule it for all 52 weeks, all 365 days of any given year, because we are in desperate need of reviving. But we have to fully comprehend what is communicated in this psalm as David is petitioning God, much like Isaiah, as we'll see in a moment, to do something over again. Revive us again, please God. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah is petitioning God. He's begging God to visit. Now, let me be careful with that term. Listen to Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou, he's talking to God, wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire that causeth waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. That's a mouthful of a prayer right there. That's a, that's a request for some strange things. Ultimately, if I were to boil that down, Isaiah, the man of God, is praying that God would visit again, that his power would once again be manifest, that his name would be exalted because his power is so visible. Now understand, Isaiah was a faithful preacher during a time when the nation of Israel was going to pieces. It's much like David's prayer. David is praying within the confines of a covenant relationship with God for the nation of Israel. But there is much that's applicable to us. The nation of Israel was working. They were trying to stave off disaster by forming alliances of all kinds. Ultimately, what Isaiah is communicating to them is, you can be busy. You can be full of activity, you can exert effort, you can make all of the alliances that you want, but the fact is, all of your plans will fail if you do not turn to God. 
He took a look around at the current condition of things and he remembered a day when God did terrible things. Not terrible in the sense that we might understand them, but things that struck people with awe and wonder. He's reflecting on a time when God's power was manifest with Moses on Sinai. When God went before Joshua and the armies of Israel in settling the promised land. He's perhaps thinking of moments with Gideon and King David when they walked in power and the prophet Isaiah is effectively saying, God, please do that again. It's a prayer that David is reiterating. It is one that we can offer up to God ourselves. Spurgeon said of the 85th Psalm, it's the prayer of a patriot for his afflicted country in which he pleads the Lord's former mercies and by faith foresees brighter days. Foreseeing brighter days is something that escapes us, isn't it? As I referenced a moment ago, I could perhaps pull the room and say, how many of you see brighter days ahead? Probably not a lot of hands would go up. How many of you are thrilled with where your retirement currently is? Okay, no. How many of you are really amped about the direction of interest rates currently? Okay, Well, if we can't take comfort in where our retirement stands and we're not really excited about raising interest rates, at least we can all be comforted and excited about the good direction of morality in our nation. Okay, we don't have that either. So what we could all do is we could go sit in a corner and we could cry our eyes out and we could live as though there was absolutely no hope or we can comprehend what this prayer is in Isaiah 64 and Psalm 85 and petition God for actual hope for brighter days. Because any student of Scripture and any child of God understands factually brighter days are ahead and there's no way to escape it. But we have to get back to the idea of reviving, revival. Now listen, I referenced a moment ago, if revival was simply something that we could schedule, we would be right to schedule it all 365 days a year. We're desperate for it. But here's a principle we have to comprehend. Revival has a divine origin. Revival, true revival, is not sourced in a mere activity. It's not a scheduled event. It is sourced in God himself. In fact, in that verse that we read, verse 6, David prays, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? You must do the work of revival. Now let's just do a little study of scripture here. When we read through those first three verses, six times it is evident that God is the one doing the work. Thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Be favorable again. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Restore the joy again. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered their sin. Cleanse us again. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Be merciful again. Who's doing all of the work in the first three verses? God. You are doing this. Will you not also revive us again? In verse 4, the language is clear. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. 
The point is, this is a prayer that God would do what only God can do, which is a work of reviving. Ultimately, God is the author of life. None of us would deny that. Scripturally speaking, we cannot deny that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is life. The 23rd Psalm tells us that he is a restorer of souls. That's what he does. By nature, God gives life. He wants to revive, and we have to understand that we must ask for God to do his work. Revival is not conjured up any more than we can control a hurricane coming up the East Coast. But God is a reviver, and God wants to revive, so how do we get there? Revival has divine origins, there's no doubt. And because of that, it carries divine expectations. God's work will go forward in a conditional way. What are the divine expectations for revival? After we read those two words, wilt thou, will you not revive us again? Those two words, revive us, indicate a current condition. If I need revived, it indicates something about my current condition. One wrote this, we are dead or dying, faint or feeble. God alone can revive us. He has in other times refreshed his people. He is still the same. He will repeat his love. So if we know that God by nature is a reviver, and we know that it is his desire to revive, what then could possibly be hindering that from happening? Now remember, we referenced Isaiah 64 just a moment ago, where Isaiah is taking a look at the nation that surrounds him, and he is begging God to step in for God to make his power seen and visible again. And he says something very poignant in verse 5. And it reveals to us one of the impediments for true revival. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth, he says, and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold, thou art wroth. You are angry, God, and rightfully so, because his next four words are, for we have sinned. What is the great impediment to revival. God is by nature a reviver. It is his desire to revive. What is the great impediment to true revival? Restoration happening unequivocally, not debatable. It's sin. The presence of sin. We have to face the fact that sin hinders revival. You say, well, thankfully, there are no sinners in this room. I don't know. I'm here. You're here. We've already established James 4, 17, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. To him it is sin. If you're not doing good, noble, do good works, that's what the Bible does. If we're not doing that, we are in sin. John says it more plainly. He says this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, I'm not exactly pointing a finger. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm just establishing a scriptural precedent. One of the great impediments to genuine revival happening is the presence of sin. And one of the reasons there is the presence of sin is because largely we're dishonest with ourselves about it. 
Listen to what we read in Isaiah 64, 6. We are all as an unclean thing, Isaiah says. That's all inclusive. He'll get further by saying, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. One of the reasons that revival doesn't happen is the presence of sin. One of the reasons that we have a continuing presence of sin is we lie to ourselves. We are too self-righteous to see our sinfulness. That's why Isaiah says, even in your best moments, your righteousness is as a filthy rag. If I were to say it as pointedly as I could, one of the reasons we don't have revival is we're too good for revival. We're too impressed with ourselves to have revival. Do you ever have a different view or a different version of yourself in your mind than actually exists? I live with it. I happen to think of myself at my advanced age as still really young. I think so. I saw my son yesterday. My wife took a picture of us. He's standing next to me, and I used to stand next to my son like this, and then this, and then this, and now it's this, and he can put his arm on my shoulders. and makes me feel really small. My wife made the comment on looking in the picture. She said, I never thought we'd see a day where Chase looked down on you like that. It's a very emasculating phrase, to be quite honest. I think of myself in one way, and then I am forced to see myself in true, real light. I saw a picture of me. I have gray in my beard. What? I don't have as much hair as an 18-year-old. What? I am more frail than I once was. What? I'm having to come to terms with what I really am, not what I think, not what I perceive, not what I have fooled myself into thinking, but into reality. I'm not a college kid. Can I tell you something spiritually speaking? We're too good for revival. We are so impressed with our self-righteousness that we impede True revival. Sin is present because we're dishonest with ourselves. We have the disease of the church of Laodicea. In the book of Revelation, God is writing letters, seven letters to seven churches. We don't know a whole lot, but we know enough. And of the church of Laodicea, here's what he writes. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But here's the true assessment. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The real you is not the same as the perceived you. And you will not get sin out of your life until you see its presence in your life. And activity And mere external deeds don't get it done. I love what one author said. He said this, do you know what a church of Pharisees would look like? I have an idea. Everyone would go to church in a church full of Pharisees. Everyone would read the Bible. Everyone would pray in public. Everyone would be separated. 
everyone would give a tithe and everyone would be lost. And everyone would remain unrevived. Because our self-righteousness and our perceived goodness keeps us from seeing ourselves as we truly should. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, that is sin. That may be your only sin, but it's a wretched one. And if you're honest beyond that, you certainly have the presence of sins beyond not just doing what you know you ought to do. But because we always hide it away and we excuse ourselves and we let ourselves off the hook and we perceive ourselves to be better than we actually are, we never eradicate sin as we should. And because sin is there due to our dishonesty with ourselves, what is the ultimate result of that is apathy. Apathy takes over. Fatigue dominates us. We slog our way through the Christian life. We're discouraged. We're beat down. We live in a fog. We live in a cloud. We don't know where to go. We don't have wisdom. We don't have energy. We don't have passion. We lack hope for brighter days, not because God has not promised them to us, but because we're so controlled by apathy. We're passionless. Why are we apathetic? Because we're dishonest with ourselves about the presence of sin. Listen to Isaiah 64, 7. There is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. There isn't one because of iniquities. That's what he writes in that verse. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. We have become an apathetic group. I don't mean us specifically. I mean Christians at large. Because we're dishonest with ourselves, we remain unrevived because sin is ever present. One English preacher said, if you ever want to convict a room full of Christians, ask them this, when was the last time you led somebody to Jesus Christ? And then follow it up with this, when was the last time you tried? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Paul says, there are some that have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Why is the gospel impotent? Why do things Go as they go. Why do we seem like we are constantly in a a fog and dominated by fatigue and beat down and joyless with no hope for brighter days? Could it be that we are desperately in need of revival and the impediment of revival is that we're just dishonest with ourselves and sin is in control? In that seventh verse of Isaiah 64, notice he doesn't say there is none stirred to action. He doesn't say there is none stirred to greater separation. There is none stirred to another program. There is none stirred to another activity. He said, no, there is no one that stirs up himself to take hold of you. There isn't one person that's calling upon thy name. It's the disease of the church of Sardis. I referenced the church of Laodicea a moment ago. Here's the disease of the church of Sardis, Revelation 3.1, under the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works. I see your activity. I see your works. That thou hast a name that thou livest. Your reputation is that you are living, that you are not in need of revival. I have seen your works. I have heard what your reputation is. But here's God's assessment. 
you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. I see your activity and I'm aware of your reputation. But the real situation is you're dead. You are in desperate need of revival. Strengthen the things that remain before they die off. Do the right thing. I referenced some of those revival meetings. Some of those old revival preachers, evangelists, revivalists, whatever that term may be, said things in a pretty straightforward way. One was Sam Jones. He said this, if I went out to chop wood and you found me sitting there with my axe on my knees and not a chip in sight, you could reasonably ask, what are you waiting for? What would you think if I said, well, I'm waiting until I work up a sweat. And when I do that, I'm going to chop wood. Well, the reality is you chop wood, you work up a sweat. Or so they tell me. Can't say I've chopped a lot of wood. To follow that up, another, Vance Havner, said this. A lot of people are waiting for a lovely feeling. Then he says this. You have a Bible there. Read it. He goes further and he says, pray whether you feel like it or not. Go to God's house to pray. Get one foot in front of the other and do the thing that you ought to do. I love this. We need to take ourselves by the nape of the neck and make ourselves do what we know we ought to do whether we feel like it or not. Revival desperately needs to happen. Well, how do I do that? Confess sin. Well, how do I do that? It's in the Bible. Well, I got to wait till we have more time. I got to wait till Tuesdays or Wednesdays. I just have to wait. Don't wait to work up a sweat to start chopping wood. Chop wood and work up a sweat. You have a Bible? Read it. You know to pray? Pray. The church should assemble together. Assemble together. Believers have been given a spiritual gift to employ in the service of the king. Use your spiritual gift. Begin to do the things you know you ought to do. Don't sit back waiting for God to do some great thing if you aren't doing the things you and I should be doing. You say, so do I wait till Tuesday? About Wednesday? Can we wait till after football games today? I do think there's a caveat in scripture that allows that. You can start tonight. Do what you know you should do, even when you don't feel like doing those things. The prophet Hosea said this, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. You want to reap mercy? Sow righteousness. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord till He come and rain righteousness upon you. True revival has a divine origin. It's sourced in God. It carries some divine expectations that we acknowledge the presence of sin by being honest with ourselves and repent of it and rid ourselves of the apathy. And sometimes the way to work your way through apathy is to do the things you know you should be doing. And then beautifully, revival brings divine hope. The result of being revived, the result of spiritual restoration is hope. For brighter days. Hope in the midst of darkness. Just listen to the words that replace the the words at the beginning of Psalm 85. Words like wrath, iniquity, anger, and sin. 
Those words are replaced in the second part of that chapter with salvation, peace, mercy, truth, righteousness, good, and increase. And and in the 13th verse, he says, here's a result of being revived. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. You'll know where to go, how to walk, what to do, because you're doing things the right way. Wouldn't it be great to see God do great things in your time and mine. He wants to. God is a restorer. He is a reviver. He wants to revive. The impediment is sin. Dishonesty with ourselves. The result of all of that is apathy in our lives. And therefore we stop the cycle. We don't see the revival. Winston Churchill once said, I'm certainly not one of those people who needs to be prodded. In fact, if anything, I am the prod. Now, I'm not that kind of guy. But I do wish when it came to revival that I could say that of myself. But I can't. I wish that I was the prod. I know the word is. I know the spirit of God is. I know the fact is we have to be honest with ourselves. If God's ever going to do great things, if we're ever not going to slog our way through life, If we're not going to live in a cloud of misery and despondency and fatigue and controlled by external circumstances, if we're ever going to do that, we have to get real. That's not just some term. That is fact. To bust out of apathy, we've got to be honest with ourselves. And when we're honest with ourselves, we're going to see sin in our lives. And when we see sin in our lives, we repent and we confess of it. And when that begins to happen, God can visit again and show his power. And revival is something that we don't schedule once a year. It's something that we need daily. We present our bodies a living sacrifice. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 12. And we transform our minds... We're renewed by the word of God. We cannot be pressed into the form of this world. We've got to be transformed and renewed in our minds by the word of God. That's a daily necessity. That's an ongoing situation. I can assure you, you need restoration right now. True revival right now. I will tell you, you and I are not going to arrive there unless we're prodded out of apathy, honest with ourselves, confessing sin, and asking God to do what only God can do. Wilt not thou revive us again? Turn us, O God. Do what only you can do. The sad part for Isaiah was there's no one that's stirred up to take hold of God. And so revival doesn't happen. But we have a chance Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.